Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Daf Yomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm Natanel Zalas Palay. On today's episode, personal space, virtual space, and headspace. Shabbos depends on other people's work, as various people in my life have reminded me at various times completely legitimately. You can only make Shabbos when someone else is doing the work. And you can only rest in a pandemic world when other people are doing that essential labor. We're not the first to ask why an entire book about Shabbat, a centerpiece of Jewish life for millennia, and the focus of one of the longest tractates in the Talmud at that, begins with a discussion of where one cannot go and where one cannot carry things. Isn't Shabbat about presence, about being here, not about going there, as one does every other day? And yet I think we're especially equipped in this fraught moment, in the middle of a global pandemic that has confined us to our homes, that has made every day a quasi-Shabbat, to think about this question. Joining me today to carry us towards some answers is Dr. Zachary Berger. Zachary Shalom Berger, MD-PhD, is Associate Professor in the Johns Hopkins Division of General Internal Medicine and the core faculty at the Berman Institute of Bioethics, with joint appointment in the Bloomberg School of Public Health, a clinical epidemiologist, bioethicist, and practicing primary care physician. Zach is the author of two books for the lay public on doctor-patient communication and on patient preference in the context of medical evidence. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. In the nearly 100-year history of the Daf Yomi, there have been many instances where the content of the Daf aligns with the world, whether in terms of the Jewish calendar or current events. Many people have been talking about this recently, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts as an epidemiologist and physician on the front lines, as well as someone familiar with Jewish history and culture. What do you make of the fact that we are learning about the difference between public and private spaces and transmission between them as we face a global pandemic? I think that it was very interesting to me that the transition between Barachot and Shabbat, between a tractate which is so much about bodies and a tractate that's so much about space came just as the world was entering into this pandemic space. And Brachot and Shabbat are both as much about constructing bodies and constructing space as it is about noticing and describing bodies in space because the rabbinic world is prescriptive as much as descriptive and it's creative as much as it is investigational. So it's not just about the rabbis noticing human bodies, it's the rabbis making a world out of the bodies they want to construct. And similarly, Tractate Shabbat is about spaces the rabbis want to construct, how you carve the world into particular kinds of space. And what struck me about the introduction that you, you gave was about how the pandemic makes a mini Shabbos for so many of us, and how the rabbi's construction of space assumes given definitions of who lives in those spaces. So talking about what's Rishusa Yachid and Rishusa Rabin, what is the private and the public space, depends on assumptions and definitions of what is a Yachid, what is an individual, and what is a public, who moves in these spaces, who is carrying these things from place to place, who is running into each other, right? What, who are active individuals? Who are these individuals in between space and space? And obviously, the first mission in Shabbos talks about the Balabas given to the Ani, the, the homeowner, the archetypal homo economicus of rabbinic literature, who is, of course, a man giving to an Ani, 
a poor person who is, of course, a man. So these people are operating in, in these two spaces. So we're talking about defining spaces around which people exist in them. So when you're defining domains about who moves through them, you need to consider who you're leaving out and who you're putting in, right? And so when we say a pandemic is like a mini Shabbos, which I've seen, it's been made pretty frequently. The thing that is potentially problematic about the observation, which I, I take it as mostly made with benign intentions, is that Shabbos depends on other people's work, as various people in my life have reminded me at various times completely legitimately. You can only make Shabbos when someone else is doing the work. And you can only rest in a pandemic world when other people are doing that essential labor. And you can only rest at home, stay at home, when people are working in grocery stores, when healthcare workers are doing their thing, when people are cleaning roads and, and cleaning up after accidents and putting out fires. So every domain depends on those who help define that domain. Rest depends on those who make that rest possible. So thinking of domains as an actively created space is something that lines up very much with our idea of the rabbis as creative individuals, of halacha and rabbinic literature as, a, to my mind, as a, a hugely creative literature. That's really thought-provoking. I was thinking just in terms of how the pandemic has kind of melted our different spaces into another, in terms of our private spaces, our homes being now places where we can transmit a disease that can affect someone else on the other side of the world. So the, the private space becoming a, a public space. And uh, even in terms of telework and Zoom, everyone's uh, you know personal living rooms have becoming the public domain in terms of being able to be seen by everyone. But that's an even uh, more fundamental point, I think, that you're making about how this pandemic is really forcing us to deconstruct how we look at the spaces themselves and like you say who allows us to define them and to construct them and thank you for bringing that up because that's a very important point and that's something that could be lost on some sections of our community or the world that are not as affected so as you mentioned the connections really start from the first mishnah of the tractate the first two words of the mishnah are yitziot Shabbat, literally the goings out the departures of Shabbat. And the Mishnah continues, as you explained, by listing cases of carrying between public space and private. So now we're all learning about what it means to go about our daily, if disrupted, routines without leaving the house. As I said before, and many people have been saying, it's like quasi-Shabbat. I saw a tweet the other day that said, there are now only two days, Shabbos and not Shabbos. And yet, in many ways, life right now is far more stressful than usual. As you said, obviously for the people on the front lines, well, even people at home, obviously not this, not to the same degree or scale at all. But So it, even though it seems like Shabbat, it doesn't feel like Shabbat at all. So I was thinking maybe the tractate starts with these laws because this is the bare minimum. The prerequisite for observing and appreciating Shabbat as best as we can is just to be here now. It's about presence. So I'm wondering how has remote work and social distancing and the other things that this pandemic has brought how has it changed how you think of the limitations of Shabbat, but also what it means to be present? That's a great question. I think presence is only, it's done in relation to other people. I am here because someone else is over there, right? And so that brings us back to the first Mishnah. Yitzhak HaShabbos, the Balabas, they're the, they're the inside one, right? The Ani, the poor person is the outside one. So who gets to be present in the first Mishnah is the Balabas. The Ani is coming to him, ka, ka, ka Ani Bepesach, like a, like, a, like a poor person at the, at the gate. 
waiting for the donation. Of course, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah consider various ring the changes on who's giving to who, right? Um, and does one person stick out an empty hand and, and, and the other person put something in it, vice versa? And how many entrances and exits are there? But the Mishnah makes it clear, I think, that there's one person situated in their domain and the Ani is coming to ask for something. And I think that's the community our Shabbos should be built on. We don't want the Shabbos of the gated community. We want the Shabbos of the, if we want the, if we, if, if there, any community is gated to a certain extent, we want that gate to be breached by those around us. We want to think about a Shabbos which is invaded on, which is mafulash, which is penetrated by the life of those we don't think about who are around us all the time. Those of us who are living hand to mouth, who are cleaning our floors, who are doing that work, who are imprisoned and disenfranchised and otherwise ignored in so many settings. And, you know, as you know, recently in the Dafyomi, we learn, we learn about bitulanim, that peya, that leaving things for the poor, is not a demonstration or a magnanimity. It's not a demonstration of how nice we are and that there's this vast, gray, undifferentiated mass of poor people that we're going to leave peya for. No, the whole concept of bitul anim is that you're, you have to leave the right things for the right people. And you're not supposed to give everything of, of yours away willy-nilly like, like some of the um, utilitarians would say, that you just need to, get every, you need to get every excess bit of goods out of your pocket into someone else's pocket. No, you need to give the right things to the right people to have the right sort of distribution. So Shabbos is about letting that breach happen and recognizing who you are in community with and recognizing which there your fear depends on. And uh, Shabbos is not a silent occasion, right? It's punctuated by the shofar blast. And that's significant because as we all know, the shofar blast also connotes societal crisis. Of course, the Rambam, I think based on the Gemara, says that the shofar is used in fast days to call people to assembly. And it's also used to mark the beginning of, the sh of Shabbos. So societal restructuring and deliberation can happen in the context of a real Shabbos. So that's what I think of when I think of domains and, and here and there. Um, about that first Mishnah, letting our um, equanimity, letting our contentment, our equanimitas, to use the medical term, be breached. That's, that's what Shabbos can be. That's beautiful. And it brings to mind another idea that perhaps we have to make distinctions between the spaces in our lives, the public and the private, so we can bridge those spaces. We can, we can build the Eruv. We can, you know, combine the different private domains, like in Eruv wrote, combining different private domains into one public domain. So that's, uh, that's another way to think about it. Adarim beir hazot, right? Everybody, everybody dwelling together. Right. So the next connection comes up on the very next page. The Talmud discusses the question of whether one is liable for carrying if one did not pick up an object on their own, but the object was loaded onto their back by another. The same discussion raises the question of whether a person's hand is considered by Jewish law to function as private property, such that one is liable for merely placing an object in someone's hand. Both are reminiscent of some of society's own questions. The Talmud of infectious transmission and interpersonal responsibility that is being written now by health professionals scientists, politicians, and the general public. Is one required to practice social distancing to its most severe extent is if one is severely careful about their own personal hygiene because of the chance one could be coughed on 
by someone else who is less scrupulous? How should we relate to those who have neglected to keep their own private property, their bodies, to themselves during this vulnerable time? Those are some of the questions that this Talmud that's being written now is asking. And perhaps most fundamentally, how do we toe the line between relating to people as people, possessing agency and deserving of our trust rather than as mere vectors? Yeah, so so that makes me think of a Facebook post that a friend of mine, who I won't quote because I you know, don't know if she wants to be quoted, but a physician who said that um, social distancing, if done properly, reminds her of, of the laws of Kashrut, that one law is that even if even if you have your own kosher bowl and spoon and your own food, you shouldn't be in a, a non-kosher establishment because people might be led to think that it is okay to eat in such an establishment. So even if you're scrupulous in your own hygiene, you shouldn't really be doing a uh, something that I haven't really seen actually anyone that I know do, but I know people do, or I've read about like a, a six foot picnic where people do ordinary social gathering type things, but they just take pains to stay six foot away from the felt, from their fellow person. The idea being that it's a gazera, that social distancing is primarily so that one does not participate in these activities that, that cause actual um, bodily contact and, and, and droplet contact, but also lest one does more, lest one transgresses even if one plans not to. Which, as you say, raises questions of personal responsibility and, and hewing to suggested practices and who is doing the right thing and who is not. Um, and that leads to two thoughts. Just as one should not moralize the medical, one shouldn't medicalize the moral, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. So one, one obvious and very prevalent thought is that if you see a group of people who are not behaving like you in a way that certain other groups of people, maybe powerful people or influential people or knowledgeable people have said should not be done, that you think those group of people are lesser, are lesser than you. Oh, those people are not obeying social distancing. Oh, those people are using substance X or they don't look like the way I think healthy people should look. They are lesser people. So definitely at first blush, and I think the moral intuition is correct, that is a, an incorrect thing to do. That's a morally problematic thing to do. And it's something that I, as a physician and any clinician, and I strive to, to remind the people I teach that if someone has a medical condition, it's not their fault, no matter what behaviors people practice, because people practice all sorts of behaviors, and that doesn't render them deserving of harm to their self or, or, or body. So that's one point to make, that someone that doesn't properly social distance, one shouldn't say, oh, they got what's coming to them, I think, as a, as a moral human being, because everybody is flawed and everybody makes mistakes. And the converse of that, when I said you shouldn't medicalize the moral, is as a, a sort of a point I was making about Shabbos, and a point I think that many of us take pains to make, some people important to me have, have taught me about, is that there are social structures, inequitable social structures that are causing how risks of disease are distributed. A friend of mine, Josh Garoon, who's a sociologist at Wisconsin has helped me understand this point. There is no place to go back to before the pandemic. There are merely social structures of inequity and injustice that have created the ground on which pandemics act. It is not the case that those who are working today, even though people are not supposed to be at work, are behaving badly. And it is also not the case that it's only relevant because of disease. These things intersect. There, there are moral 
qualities of the way societies and, econo and economies are structured that promote the spread of disease. So that's in first blush, you shouldn't moralize the medical. You shouldn't say this person doing behavior X, which helps spread this disease is morally culpable. And you shouldn't go the other way. You shouldn't say this disease is a, a merely medical thing and lacks any moral import on, the, on the, the level of social or political structures. But the third thing to say about this intersection is that these realms intersect in so many ways, the moral and the medical. At a more complicated level, you know, who is worth a certain diagnosis? Who gets the treatment? Who do we tend, we shouldn't, but it's part and parcel of the, of the healthcare professions. Uh, certain people are deemed more worthy of helping than others. That's an is, not an ought. But the way historically that healthcare has been structured is that doctors make diagnoses which put people in various categories. And you immediately see the comparison to the rabbinical world that who is a person, who is a person that is deemed an actor in this halachic world and who is deemed marginal, who is deemed to be a constructor, constructor of domains and who is not. Um, these are very much constructed categories and they're rich with moral implications. So the moral and the, the medical very much intersect. So who is being quarantined right now, right? Quarantine is not universal. There are people whom quarantine will affect more, and there are people who are more expected to obey quarantine more than others. Um, there are people right now, I am sure, who are working because they're being told to work, right? Because if, some, if someone is a, if there's an essential establishment open, someone is working at that essential establishment. Many people are, are like those people that I take care of, are undocumented immigrants. Uh, that on which our service industry, especially in Baltimore and presumably other cities depend, and they can't say, you know what, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not essential. So the moral and the medical very much intersect, um, and these are all constructed domains. Just like, like who said it was that the hand is a reshuse, right? Who said that? That is very much a creation of, it's a way of looking at the person, the human being, and in the view of the Talmud, very much the male human being, as a builder, a constructor, a doer of things, and the hand is so important that it's a separate domain because hands build and they carry and they throw, right? You could imagine other parts of the body being their separate domains, but the rabbis don't do that. So it, it, it implies a very specific construction of the world. Right. And that's a very good segue into my next question. The Talmud records a dispute between Rabbi Huda and the sages about the nature of a Rashid Harabim, the public domain. Rabbi Huda holds that the enclosed space can be considered a Rishut Harabim, while the sages hold that it cannot. Pursuant to the general discussion, the later sage Abaye adds that when the nascent Jewish nation was traveling in the desert before entering the land of Israel, even the desert was rendered a Rishut Harabim, by virtue of their sheer population. His assertion floats the possibility that our halachic definitions of public versus private domains are dependent on time and circumstance. And as you said, the current crisis is forcing us to reconsider so many definitions and norms that have been ingrained in our societal fabric for years, if not decades. And as you said, to realize how much inequity is really built into the system. All of us, not just our governments, are asking ourselves what it means for something, a business, an employee, a personal need to be essential, is something you mentioned. As a doctor and epidemiologist whose expertise is so needed in this moment, right. what variation of this question are you asking yourself now? And again, thinking back to the connection to, 
to Shabbat and the connection between Shabbat and the Malachat HaMishkan, right, the, the, the labor of the tabernacle. All of those enumerated labors, those 39 labors, depend on additional labors. Like those are not all, all encompassing labors. Each one of those depends on further labors beneath them. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the toldos. I'm talking about all the labors that require you to get up to that moment. And so who is an essential worker in this moment? And I'm thinking about not just the healthcare workers, but not just the, the clinicians, but the people that clean the hospitals and all the people that make a society who are the families and the loved ones of those essential workers. I don't think I have an answer of who is essential, who isn't essential, uh, but it would be interesting to think about the domains of society itself. It, I was thinking in, in preparation for our chat, I was thinking about what are the definitions of the, of the d- different uh, rishiot? And they're really, they're partially societal definitions, right? So about rishiot Rabim and how many people need to be tra- traveling through it. But they're also really physical about physics and nature and, and, and deep holes and airspace and rivers and pits. And they're about heights of walls, but they're not about fully realized structures. And so what would different domains of society look like if we were to construct things that were fully realized. And what would it look like? What would a public domain look like in a Jewish idiom? What institutions, what institutions would make that up? And would there be areas in which we wouldn't enter into? Would there be areas that we would call a Malcolm Batur, which wouldn't really be included in any of our definitions? Would there be areas that we would call Rishus Yachid, which a, a Jewish organization or a Jewish political entity wouldn't enter into? And so when I think about this pandemic moment and essential workers, I think not just about the larger societal questions, but how do we as a Jewish community participate in response and, and participate in those effect, as those affected by the pandemic? And I mean the Jewish community in the, in the broadest sense, and even thinking about it politically in, in internal Jewish politics. How should one sector of, Jude, of Jews react when another sector of Jews is so deeply affected? Obviously we have to react in the moment with compassion and and mourning, but we also need to understand why the epidemic affected a, such a sector so deeply and figure out how our domain should better intersect in the future. That's a really poignant way to think about it. Yeah, that's definitely something that's on my mind and I'm sure the minds of, of many of us in this moment. One of the major implications of the differences between the public and private domains is actually not a Shabbat implication. The Talmud brings up in several places the case of a suffix, doubt, about tumah, ritual impurity, and it makes a spatial distinction between a Rishud Hayachid and a Rishud Harabim. If the doubt stems from an encounter with impurity that incurred in the public domain, the sages rule leniently, and we can consider anyone or anything involved in that encounter as tahor, or ritually pure. If, on the other hand, the encounter took place in the private domain, we must assume tumah, impurity. Knowing that it is a natural human instinct to rationalize illness, and particularly with the use of metaphors, and you talked about not moralizing the medical earlier, should we resist the temptation to compare infection to Tuma and Tahara and metaphors in general? I think I might approach the question from the other direction in, in talking in learning Torah and talking to people about Tuma and Tahara as Torah categories or in thinking about contemporary halakha categories that are equated with Tuma and Tara. And for example, in, in Hilchot Nida, you can argue that 
those are different categories than Tumatara, but the overlap is there. So the question is how one sees those categories. It's always made an impression on me, the discussion by Jacob Milgram and his Anchor Bible on Leviticus on using sociological categories as how Tumatara are ways of sublimating deep-rooted instincts about what is proper and what is improper, deep-seated dis discomfort with bodily fluids and death. So using those categories to approach disease is perhaps a national and intuitive thing. Um, but I would say after that, that I don't think there is any wisdom and repugnance. I think our, our natural tendencies are often to be resisted. Our natural tendency to find other people, you know, off-putting or repugnant if they're unlike us is a, n not an instinct we should encourage. We should uh, recognize other instincts of universal humankind and recognize that everybody has the potential to fall ill and everyone has an imperfect body. So using Tuma and Tara and saying Tuma Tarabim Hutra is a powerful metaphor and, and you have to use the right way to acknowledge that we are all unclean and all imperfect, I think is a very powerful thing to say without falling into the fallacy that these are real empirical categories to describe actual human beings that we're seeing today. I think that would be a mistake. It is so easy to call people unclean. It is something we do as a society regularly. You know, in my profession, people talk about clean or unclean urines, right? Someone has someone taking opiates for pain and you're supposed to give a urine test in some quarters before you get that prescription to make sure that you're not misusing the prescription and is your urine clean or unclean, right? That's a very concrete use of the, that metaphor. You know, that's, a, that's an easy slippage from saying urine is clean or unclean to saying people are, people are clean or unclean. That's a slippage I think is to be avoided. So the Torah's perspectives on the moral implications of illness reflect aspects of his theology. How are you thinking about this pandemic from a theological perspective, perhaps in, in light of the discussions on Yudbet, Amudbet, about visiting the sick, and you know the, how the the shechina, the divine presence, hovers by the bed of a sick person, and the idea that when you pray for a sick person, you have to pray for all sick people. I mean, I think the, we know that the shechina can can suffer injury, right? And that and that God can suffer pain. So understanding that um, when we are praying, when we when we see the when we, when the shechina is present at the bed of the chola, that's that's the representation of the the sickness of the entire world. You know, I don't think of myself as a couple of a Kabbalist, but I think understanding that there are multiple domains to the divine and that the divine interacts with the world um, through those domains is a very useful concept. And that we're together with God in dialogue and creation and trying to perfect and imperfect creation. And all those things I feel very deeply uh, in these days. I think it's a kind of a beautiful way to, to end off. And thank you so much, Zach. Yashikach. Thank you. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and at Interleaved underscore pod on Twitter. Subscribe to our podcast. And while you're at it, leave a review. We'd love to know what you think. Special thanks to our executive producer, Dina Cart. Come back next time for another deep dive 